today's presidential address is from 2018 and Dr. Brant Thrasher and covers artificial intelligence, robotics, and the future of urology. Well, thank you very much. For those of you who were here for that discussion, I guess I picked a bad day to forget my tape measure, but uh, it was an interesting discussion. As I gave some thought into this presidential address, I had several things I wanted to do. First, I wanted to make it a segue into two of our talks with Dr. Butte and Dr. Mole about big data and how it will change our practice in addition to robotics. But furthermore, I wanted to address a big challenge for us in urology, and that's burnout, physician burnout. Had a great discussion about it yesterday. I do think it's an issue, but in my personal opinion, it's because we're an old specialty. Half of us are over the age of 55, a third of us are still clinically active in our 70s, and because of that, many of us remember the written chart. Okay, electronic medical records to us, which are one of the primary drivers for burnout, many of us now are just getting used to that with our templates and our macros and our smart phrases. I believe that after we get off the steep side of this learning curve, as we see our residents and interns do, using this appropriately, this technology, I think, will help us. It'll be an adjunct, not a liability. So I want to address the issue of robotics, big data, which is a big issue, and the future of urology. So I'm hoping to tie this all together as we introduce our next speaker. So I think that the future of urology remains very bright. The demand for our services continues to grow worldwide. We continue to train the best and the brightest. And this isn't fake news. I'm going to show you some data to suggest that. Early adopters of new technology, we've always been that way. Dick had a great presentation last year in his presidential address about us being early adopters and adapters, shockwave lithotripsy, lasers, and robotics. And advanced machine learning, as we'll hear, automation and robotics will continue to change urology, and in my estimation, for the better. This is our urology match. Most of you know that we administer the match, that is the AUA, and the SAU, which was the Society of University Urologists, actually audits the match. Been doing that for 35 plus years. The match has now expanded to several fellowships, urologic oncology, endourology, pediatrics, female pelvic medicine, and infertility. We had 130 residency programs this past year that applied, 477 applicants. The average number of applications that a program receives is almost 250. The average number of interviews that they grant, 36. The average number of applications, which is amazing to me that this many applications going from our applicants, 68. The average number of programs listed, 14. And the total number matched, 75%. That's for domestic alone. Now, this is our match comparison. These are our colleagues, okay? If you compare our match rate, just the total number of folks that apply for positions that match, it's 61% for urology. The only thing that challenges that a little bit better is thoracic and vascular. We both know that those are fellowships. Those are not our, our equal. Those are not our residency matches. So if you look at neurosurgery, orthopedics, ENT, plastics, and even general surgery, we are much more difficult to get into, and therefore we get the pick of the litter. What are the factors that contribute to burnout? If you look at this slide, you can see the electronic medical records is one of the primary drivers. What are we using? Epic and Eurochart by far. This is from Urology Times in 2017. What do they cite, meaning us? What do we cite as a disadvantage of EHR? It takes too much time entering data. Number two, it's a workflow disruption. And number three, it takes away from eye-to-eye -eye contact with our patients. There's no doubt that's true. How satisfied are we with it? Look there to your right. 6% for urologists are very satisfied compared to family practice and pediatrics. They're not very satisfied. 
This was on the front page of The Economist in 2017, the world's most valuable resource today. It's Google, Facebook. It's not petroleum any longer. It's big data. How can electronic medical records, new technology, and big data help us out? And how does the AUA stay in front of this for us? How are they adapting, meaning our organization, a service organization, helping us stay in front of this new technology? So is big data big news? It absolutely is. Large amounts of digital data, increasing computing power, and sophisticated statistical modeling will change the way we use our data. 2011, the McKinsey Report suggested that $300 billion in annual value was leveraged on big data, and in healthcare, artificial intelligence funding was $2 billion across 323 deals over a five-year period. Those deals increased by 31% in 2016. They're on track. I didn't have, don't have this data, but they were going to set a record in 2017. How can we use this? Well, I think it's going to change the way we practice medicine in diagnosis and treatment planning, monitoring patients, online consultation, data mining and quality improvement, and there are challenges. I'm not saying that the, it's much better than the written uh, in the way that we do this. We still have to correct a number of inaccuracies, and we'll talk about that. Machine learning and computer-aided imaging recognition. I think this is a place where radiology and pathology, this will change. These repetitive tasks of reading slides and reading x-rays will change the way we practice medicine. Lou, who was working with Google, demonstrated that image-level AUC scores were greater than 97%. So they teach this particular machine with artificial intelligence, they teach it to read slides. 110 slides were used for the teaching module, and they did a better job by 25% than the pathologist in identifying METs to a lymph node. Sun, these are our folks that are in Australia, New Zealand, our colleagues there. They use machine learning algorithms to predict tumor location on multiparametric MRI with a 70 to 87% accuracy. And we all know that IBM's Watson, a supercomputer that was used on Jeopardy, along with Memorial Sloan Kettering and Quest Diagnostics, are collaborating to teach Watson to help with guiding cancer treatment, identifying early cancers, and conduct genomic analyses. So how can we use this to advance our practice? I think we're going to be seeing it more often. We're going to see these machines actually read our slides and help the radiologists and pathologists identify possibilities for them to hone in on. I don't think it'll replace radiologists, but I do think it'll be an aid. Ultra-fast computers like Watson can be accessible on our tablets and smartphones. I think this is very interesting. What they're trying to teach Watson right now, you see a tumor that's very rare in your clinic. You can access Watson on your smartphone. You ask Watson to go out and look over the 3,000 trials in this particular very, very rare tumor, and it comes back with two that are specific to your patient. I think that's where these ultra-fast computers can really help us out, and I think it'll happen. The use of machine learning can then merge data, imaging data, genomics, molecular markers, and even clinical data from our electronic medical record to give us precision medicine. How about monitoring patients? This, to me, is the most exciting area. This could be cost containment for us, can actually help us get our patients out of the hospital quicker. There are wearable and implantable biosensors that are available today. They have a contact lens for diabetics that will help you monitor glucose and electrolytes real time on diabetic patients. It's there already. Additionally, we can already check urine for urinary tract infections, fertility, pregnancy, drug and alcohol levels, STDs through genomics, and tumor markers in HIV. How does this work? Well, we connect the biosensor, one that can be placed in a pad or a diaper, and that can actually Bluetooth to the mobile device. It can go out into the cloud and basically pull in data from their electronic medical record. That's social data, that's family data, surgical data, pull that in and marry the two together and give you an answer back as an MD. How can this help us? I think it'll allow for earlier discharge. 
you've got a patient that's got a urinary tract infection, you say, you need to come to the ER, you need to come back into the clinic. So I think it will change the way we practice medicine. Online consultation, I'm going to give you one example. Babylon Health being used in Britain right now. Very interesting, because what this allows you to do, it's an AI app that allows a patient to tell them what the symptoms are into your smartphone. When tested in 2016, it gave a 92% accurate course of action. So it's learned from general practitioners. You say, I've got a, a burning when I urinate, I'm having some hematuria. You give them particular symptoms, and it comes back and tells you, this is what you need to do. Additionally, it offers video consultation with the general practitioners, reminds patients to take their medications, and it can even follow up on their smartphone and say, how you feeling today? Improving quality, this is an area where the AUA has taken this on and I think has done a great benefit, a lot of money, a lot of time and resources to help you with garnering this data. Data mining and management, I believe, is the first step in changing the healthcare system. Large data sets can be extracted from EMR, as I mentioned, paired with social data, treatment, and genetic data, and we get personalized medicine. The Aqua Registry was originally initiated to help practices report quality metrics. Most of you know from the EMR, you seamlessly basically extract the data, de-identify it into the cloud, it comes back to you and your practice, and you can benchmark against other practices. How well am I doing my complications from radical prostatectomy? Just two days ago, the Science and Quality Group gave us a fantastic presentation on the uses of this. It might expand to things like research, education, even advocacy using the Aqua database. Right now, we have 205 practices representing over 1,900 urologists, and the total cost of the AUA to date is almost $6 million. This year alone, $1.7 million. So we believe big data is also a big part of what we're going to be doing in the future, and the AUA staying on top of that. What are the challenges? There's no question that there are security issues. We're all worried about that. The need to exchange and integrate databases, they're all a little bit different, and we recognize that. Ethical issues, procedures for data curation, for privacy. EMRs have inaccuracies, free text, conjecture, assumptions, and even unproven diagnoses. So we will have to work through some of these challenges. What about robotics? This, again, was one of the, the front pages of The Economist, teaching robots right from wrong. How might robots of the future, and I think Dr. Moore will talk more about this, obviously, we're already using it for teaching and telemedicine and telementoring. So for us, I can stand by a screen and I can actually show the resident what to do or take over a dual consult to tell them, wait a minute, that's not the tissue plane we want to be in. But what about for simulation? Could it be used for credentialing? Could it be used for certification? Well, our colleagues in dentistry, now this is Brandon Thrasher talking, not the ABU, not the AUA. I predict that in the future, using virtual reality and better simulation, we'll probably be testing with this. Our dental colleagues fill a tooth or place a crown before they can graduate. What's to say that we can't do the same? It's being tested, and I think in the future it may be a use for us. Telemedicine and telerounding uh, tele and remote consultation, I'll talk about those. The platform that we have right now that Dr. Moore was so instrumental in developing has also changed. We have haptic feedback, one of our primary concerns, not getting much feedback from the robot, being tested and already trialed. Micro-robots for better visualization within the perineum. We can place small robots into small ports now. It gives you a three, 3D look at the peritoneum. Nanorobots for drug delivery, chemotherapy, antibiotics delivered to small areas, and even aid in fertility, and I'll show that to you. Repetitive tasks like phlebotomy, I think that robotics will change the way we do a lot of our repetitive tasks, even to sterilize the OR. This is the RP Vita telepresence robot. We actually have a lot of outreach at the University of Kansas. We just don't have enough urologists in our workforce, and we know that. 
So they called me up and said, we're in Kirksville, Missouri. We're about four hours to your northeast. Would you come up here and talk to us? We have a robot that if you'll do surgery up here, you can go back to the home site and it'll help you round. It'll come by the bedside. You'll have a nurse there that could do physical exam if you need it. You'll get a readout of Jackson Pratt, their vital signs, temperature curves. It's just like being there, but it'll be FaceTime. This is in the pra fact it's being used right now. The VBOT. Okay, how often have we had our patients saying, I'm sorry, doc, I was held up in the lab. I was waiting to get my blood drawn, the phlebotomist didn't show up. This is a robotic arm using basically infrared and ultrasound to find the vein and go ahead and go through with this. So I think more automated tasks like this will depend on robotics. What about robots that disinfect? Is this a big deal for us? It absolutely is. Hospital-acquired infections will affect one out of 25 of our patients, and one out of nine will die. That's a $30 billion drain on our healthcare dollars. Xenex, which is out of San Antonio, Texas, using high-intensity UV light generated by xenon flash lamps to disinfect ORs or disinfect the ward. It causes cellular damage to bacteria, viruses, and bacterial spores. We push this into the operating room. I don't have to wait on turnover, so I'm sitting there saying, what is taking so long for these guys and gals to mop the room? So hopefully this is much more efficient for us, and it's already being used in several hospitals. What about the sperm bot? To me, this is one of the most interesting pieces I've seen. A nanorobot that is basically controlled by an electromagnetic field outside the body. It has not been used in humans yet, but you could see the applications. And you'll see, as I show you this, how interesting it really is. So this takes an immobile, immobile sperm, and it basically takes it to the egg for fertilization. Now, think of this for a second. It's being used right now in animals, but think about taking that for a chemotherapeutic drug and delivering it directly to a targeted site. I think the applications are amazing. Aquablation of the prostate, we've already heard about this. Procept Biorobotics is here. Uh, this is going to basically use ultrasound to identify the adenoma. It's basically an automated robotic arm that will drag through the adenoma and using an aquablation aquajet. It, it goes ahead and sort of morselates that adenoma. It's been used in multiple clinical trials already, and what I will tell you is it will change the way we teach our residents transurethral surgery, no question. How is the AUA helping you with research and education initiatives in these areas? There are 29 research scholar awards that have used outcomes data. Seven of those have been on big data. So we're helping with research, no question. The Office of Research now has a new course called Big Data and Neurologic Research. There are seven instructional courses this year at the AUA on robotics and new technology and a recently formed new technology and imaging committee. I think drones are where artificial intelligence and the machine learning actually marry beautifully with robotics. I think drones will change the way we deliver medical care in many areas. It already is happening that way, and I will show you why and how. It can deliver blood products and a venom, antibiotics, and even AEDs, and I'll show you slides on that. What if we had drones for our partners and our colleagues down in Puerto Rico, down in the Eastern Caribbean, after Wilma and after Irma, to deliver fresh water, antibiotics? Couldn't get planes in there, couldn't even get boats in there. Could drones help us out? I'm talking humanitarian missions worldwide. No question, I think that's coming. And even condoms to Sub-Saharan Africa where they're needed and not available. Rwanda's taking this on. They put a significant amount of money into trying to get medical care to remote villages a lot of money and time and resources, so it's happening. What about here? I saw Steve Nakatas come walking up. He's out playing golf when his friends drops over on the green. An AED is dropped out of the sky by a drone to help revitalize a patient that had cardiac arrest. I think many of you probably saw on national news 
that we had two swimmers caught in a riptide in Australia, off the coast of Australia, and basically a drone delivered a personal flotation device to them and they were able to swim back and it probably saved their life because 20 minutes later they would have had a lifeguard there. So 20 minutes is a long time to be in a riptide. What about swarming drones? Many of you might have seen this on 60 Minutes. Obviously talking about military applications of drones using artificial intelligence. Uh, now, what I'm talking about would be a humanitarian mission, but let's talk about this for just one second. These drones are basically being released from pods underneath an F-18 Hornet. Look at these little guys dropping out, hundreds of them dropping into the sky. They look like little airplanes, but they're teeny. And they're talking to each other through their own computers. If we then go to the next slide, they've basically been given Make sure I can go back there. They've been given four missions. With no human interference, they're told what to do. Now, in this case, they're told to knock out a bogey in a particular area. Uh, as we say, sort of in the, the uh, bird hunting field, they're covying up, talking to each other, and deciding how they want to complete those four missions. On one of those missions, they actually circle the bogey, and several are armed and are firing, I believe, at the particular bogey. Now, why couldn't we use this for delivery of humanitarian care to our colleagues in the Eastern Caribbean? I think you can drop the drones, drop the resources, prevent us having the problems of getting those resources of medical care to these places with natural disasters. This was unveiled this year at the Consumer Electronics Symposium in Las Vegas the first unmanned air taxi. Now, many of you will say, oh, no, wait a minute, Brant, this is that's getting to George Jetson. It may be, but I think this is coming because the airspace is easier to control for those of us that are pilots, much easier to control than it is on the ground. So if you believe unmanned cars are coming, and they are, unmanned aircraft will be there next. There are a lot of, of, uh, of complications in this. The good news is that air traffic control is being controlled much easier than it is on the ground. I suspect with drones and unmanned aircraft like this, and remember, 86% of these fatal aircraft problems are from the pilot error. So if we take a look at this and we say, well, could we do it better with the computer? Could we get our patients there safer? I think it's a possibility. In fact, I think we might even see these types of things being used, drones used, to deliver supplies from the operating room to the ward, et cetera. If Amazon can do it, I'm telling you, it's on the horizon. So in summary, we continue to train the best and the brightest. And because of that, I think we'll continue to adopt and adapt to new technology and new digital platforms. Large data sets, machine learning, robotics, and drones will change the practice of urology, and in my estimation, for the better. Robots will function as an adjunct, not a replacement. Why do I say that? People ask me all the time, Brent, do you think this will take our jobs? I absolutely do not. I do not believe that a robot's gonna grab a patient's hand who is suffering from cancer, look them in the eye, and make them feel like they're the most important person in the world at that time. To let them know we'll treat them like our family members. To me, that's a human touch that we won't be able to reproduce. Now, somebody might correct me on that, but I don't think that'll happen in my lifetime. I think there'll be an adjunct, not a replacement. And the AUA will continue to monitor and adapt to the needs of the urologist and help you incorporate the changing technology to better our patients' care. So thank you very much for your time and attention.